Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from The Lancet Oncology. I'm Neil Bennett and today I'm joined on the line by Professor Laura Esserman of the Carol Frank Buck Breast Care Center at the University of California in San Francisco. Laura is one of the authors of a personal view in this month's issue about addressing overdiagnosis and overtreatment in cancer. Laura, many thanks for speaking to us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Could you start by telling us a little bit of the background behind your paper and why overdiagnosis is such a problem in oncology? The background was that there was a, a meeting organized by Sudhir Srivasava, and, uh, who runs the Early Detection Research Network, and Barry Kramer from the National Cancer Institute, and uh, gathered uh, a number of people who have been thinking and writing about the issue of overdiagnosis and asked us to really try and think harder about what could be done about it and, and to really quantify whether it was important. And I think, it, uh, I, I think the reason why overdiagnosis is um, a problem is because the hypothesis of early detection being the key to curing cancer is firmly ingrained in all of us. It's hard to, to um, for a lot of people to get beyond that. And I, I think at the beginning... By all of us, do you mean physicians and patients? Or? Yeah, physicians and patients. So, you know, way back when in the 80s, it, you know, it, it, just looking at the stage of, of cancers, our first, before we really understood that there was so much heterogeneity uh, in cancer, I think all of us, really looked at the statistics and thought, wow, if we could just catch a cancer early, that would be the key to a cure. And in some cases that is true, but in many cases that turns out not to be so. I think there's been this growing awareness that in fact there's lots of different types of cancers, lots of different precursors of cancer, and I don't think that people realize that there would be a consequence that both screening and hypervigilance to early cancers could surface more indolent disease. And without tools to identify them as indolent, uh, the community is going to treat because everyone's anxious to avoid metastatic progression and death, both patients and physicians, that people know, know of families or friends who've died of cancer, and no one wants to make a mistake. So what do you think are the main reasons behind overdiagnosis? I think that screening for cancer, the hypervigilance for cancer always, you know, and this lack of awareness that indolent lesions exist. Uh, and I, I think we've also uh, inadvertently turned our focus in screening on earlier and earlier forms of disease without the proof that, that intervening makes a difference. I think um, ductal carcinoma in sight is a perfect example. When breast cancer screening was first started, DCIS wasn't really an entity. I mean, maybe 3% of all cancers were at that time diagnosed as ductal carcinoma in situ. That's when the disease, of course, is just within the ducts and has not spread to the rest of the breast. And because it looked like invasive cancer within the cells, uh, people assumed it was naturally a precursor and that we should just get rid of it, and that became the target for screening as well. And I think now we have a situation where over 25% of all cancer, breast cancers diagnosed today are ductal carcinoma in situ, and we really don't have evidence that the majority of these, if, you know, in any of these, that if you intervene early, you're going to make a difference. Now, again, if we apply our understanding that, you know, that there's a lot of heterogeneity and some are indolent and some are not, there probably is a small fraction of lesions where it probably does make a difference. These are the precursors of, of higher grade cancers. But I think, you know, this is where we really need to, you know, we, if we want to make progress, we're going to have to come up with some new hypotheses and new theories. 
and start behaving differently. So what do you think can be done to help prevent overtreating patients? Well, that was in fact the motivation for, um, for writing this article. One of the purposes of the meeting was for us to try and think about what, would, what should our scientific agenda be? How do we better understand these different kinds of lesions? How would we set up registries? And I think all of us felt like if it felt very strongly that if we didn't get recognition and awareness of the problem and uh, that we weren't going to be able to make any progress because people would be too afraid to do anything different. So I think our first goal was to raise awareness and not make it about one particular type of cancer. Uh, It's not, and I think the purpose of that's why in this article we detailed so many different kinds of cancers and try and show that this is a phenomenon that is common to, to almost any disease that you screen. Lung cancer is a perfect example. Everyone thinks of lung cancer as a very aggressive disease where, you know, the, where the outcomes for stage two and three cancer are, are terrible and that you know, their early detection would make all the difference. Again, we see that if you screen a lot, you're going to start to pick up many more indolent lesions relative to the number of uh, more aggressive cancers that you remove. I think this is actually an important point for people to to contemplate. People think, well, it's still worth avoiding all of those indolent lesions just to catch one. And I think that's, that's a little bit of a of a false promise. So taking out lots more indolent disease doesn't necessarily help you prevent more aggressive disease. So I think we really must get ourselves as a community to work harder on creating the tools, molecular tools, uh, to help us really recognize what really is going to be indolent. So I think the first thing that we want to accomplish is to make sure that everyone recognizes that this is a real phenomenon and it probably constitutes 20 to 30% of cases in a screened population for many cancers and for some cancers where the disease is, you know, even generally less aggressive like thyroid cancers, um, many, many, many more of these cancers could be considered as, as indolent. So each group should start to think about, well, how could I, how could I decrease uh, morbidity? For patients, so it's not just how do I prevent mortality, but how do I prevent morbidity? So I think everyone needs to think about that. So I think the second thing for us to think about is how we can screen better. How do we focus on higher risk patients? If the U.S. Preventive Task Force guidelines came out, for example, recommending lung cancer screening only for people who are highest risk, uh, that helps avoid a lot of uh, finding of lesions, many of which won't even be cancer. These are these small lung nodules, you know, well over 95% of lesions, even up to a centimeter, won't be cancer, so you don't want to be doing a lot of lung biopsies. So they really try to focus in on where did it make the most sense to screen, and that's in the highest risk populations. And I think that's a very important model, and I think all of us should be thinking about that. I think that's true for breast cancer, for prostate cancers. I know my group at the University of California is is uh, working on designing a personalized screening program to really take into account personal risk and setting up a trial to test whether or not that is true. A lot of this is important if you hear about trials to participate in them. The next most important thing for us to think about is terminology. 
So if we want to work harder on, on tools that identify these ultra-low risk tumors, and we need to then rename them. So is a Gleason 3 plus 3 prostate cancer really a cancer? Well, Dr. Thompson has shown that in their watch and wait, there's a trial of 1,000 patients now with watch and wait where the 10-year survival without any treatment is 97%. So is that cancer? Should we call that cancer? Uh, many of the skin lesions that are being taken off, uh, especially in older people, that pose no risk. We should come up with terms that don't include cancer. And I think in particular, if we can identify the precursors of what we think are indolent disease, we can stop looking for them. Finally, for terminology, lesions that are precancerous are not cancerous. They have, you know, particularly lesions that might be just simply risk factors should be considered risk factors where people can either be followed a little bit more carefully or be considered for preventive measures. I think that's really important. Those are things that we can start now. So what is the the general terminology you're suggesting um, be adopted? I think that the uh, people can start with registries where there are existing tools to reclassify terminology. Our group is working on a registry for DCIS and we're going to set some criteria using some of the new molecular tools and where we have evidence that these are extremely low risk lesions. I think maybe one of the key concepts here is that when there is time, you don't need to be in a rush. And the choice for aggressive intervention is not always the best one. And people need to know there's a range of options and that an early intervention is not necessarily going to make a difference. But you can approach lesions differently. So if you knew something was a high-risk feature, like atypia in the breast, you would say, well, this is a good candidate for putting someone on one of the three FDA-approved drugs that prevent the development of cancer. Or it could be something that, given other things that are going on in someone's life, can simply be watched. I think we need to look to the prostate cancer community in this regard. Taking these lower-risk lesions and watching them has turned out to be actually probably the right thing to do for most of these people, it avoids many, many, many side effects. It took a lot of courage at the beginning, but in fact, we realize now that, again, it's not that someone with low-risk biology is suddenly going to pop up with high-risk biology. So I think there's enough groundwork that's been done across a number of different cancers that we can start to work harder on identifying appropriate criteria for registries and watching and waiting. And, you know, not everyone's going to want to do that, but you don't have to treat everyone that way. But I think we need to begin to offer people opportunities. I was just at the European Breast Cancer Meeting, and, you know, the EORTC is working on trying to start a registry for DCIS and allowing people to be watched. And I think these are exactly the kinds of things that that we want to see happening and I think it's important that the community recognize it's really important and to encourage people to participate. Again, what's going to get in people's way is fear and fear that they're missing something or they're putting people at undue risk. And I think by taking a step back, perhaps they can recognize that there is no urgent risk. I think the last two things that people can think about is, you know, one of the ways to avoid overdiagnosis is by setting different thresholds for intervention. The lung cancer screening trials, for example, you know, demonstrated that many of the lesions that are 
small and under a centimeter and a half, you know, are ones where you should just get a follow-up scan in, a, in, in four to six months and not intervene and allow time to help you identify the natural history. And that way you'll avoid um, biopsying things that are sort of inadvertent, detected. The more you put a needle in things, the more you're going to find. I think that's one of the issues we have with prostate cancer because you can sample the entire gland. If you keep sampling and doing a biopsy, you're more likely to find it or find prostate cancer. That's an important issue for the community to think about. And finally, the last suggestion we made in the paper was to think about new ways to prevent progression. Our mentality about cancer has always been about extirpating, you know, getting rid of it and all the, unfortunately, all the normal tissue around it. But there are a number of new models where people are thinking more about the maintenance of an ecosystem, for example. And there may be ways where uh, we should be focusing more on controlling the microenvironment and changing the balance. You know, the old example of the malt lymphoma going away when the H. pylori of an ulcer is treated, the wonderful example we'd all like to know about, but there may be many others of those where we could be thinking more about local control, and these are, and the opportunities to test this is perhaps more in the, where there are precancerous conditions or ways in which we can manage, and understanding that we have the luxury of time. Many thanks indeed to Laura for taking the time to speak to us today. For more details or to download the paper, visit thelancet.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.